Welcome to the Friday subscribers only edition of the Hub Dialogues, the podcast of the Hub, Canada's leading source for insight and analysis into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. On these special Friday only broadcasts, we're going to be convening Sean Spear, our editor at large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor in chief, for a conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths about the big stories and issues that have animated the public conversation over the last seven days. Our goal is to leave you with some new analysis and insights and hopefully some new perspectives on the big issues of our time. So pull up a chair right now and join Sean Spear, Stuart Thompson, and myself for the Friday subscriber-only edition of the Hub Dialogues. Hey guys, great to be in conversation with you today. This is the first of our subscriber-only hub dialogue. So um, an opportunity to dig into the week that was, try to tease out uh, some big stories and ideas for our listeners. And Sean, I want to start with you and the piece that you had in the hub this Friday. Um, a kind of a clarion call here to say that the the big news of this week, which is the first major land war in Europe since World War II is a clarion call to really the West and Canada in particular to kind of slough off some of our cultural and political decadence to kind of get serious. So unpack the key argument, the key idea that you wanted to communicate to that piece. And again, I just, I urge listeners, get onto the hub.ca, uh, check out Sean's essay. I, this is audio, so I can't make him blush, uh, at least I can't make a blush to make you see it, but it, it was a really terrific piece, Sean. So thanks for doing that. Uh, thanks, Rudyard. Um, one of the virtues of the past quarter century or so of relative peace and prosperity um, is that it enabled us to focus uh, on a whole host of issues that may not have been first order questions um, in an era of uh, conflict and struggle. And it, it seems to me um, one of the key lessons of the past 24 months from the COVID-19 pandemic to now Russia's invasion of Ukraine um, is that we've fallen into uh, a, a, a spirit of complacency. And, um, and the challenge is our, our enemies haven't. Um, Vladimir Putin it has a clear focus and a clear sense of his country's strategic interests, um, as does China, of course, which is watching uh, these events play out uh, with an eye towards its own uh, territorial uh, ambitions. And so, uh, you know, it seems to me, Rudyard, if this experience doesn't um, pull us out of these doldrums, doesn't um, cause our societies to um, stop focused on the narcissism of small differences and instead focus on our collective interests, um, economically, geopolitically, um, strategically, um, then I worry that th there may be nothing that does. And, and so I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to kind of challenge our, our readers um, to see what's occurring in Ukraine through the lens of this Western decadence. And, um, you know, I think it's, at the core of the hub's kind of editorial mission 
um, to challenge um, Canadian policymakers, business leaders, and 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 ordinary and the ordinary public to um, to set a kind of higher ambition um, for our, our country and society. So, Stuart, you've been covering uh, obviously the pandemics, ins and outs, twists and turns for the hub as our editor in chief. You know. The counterpoint, and Sean, you do mention it in your piece, so I'll give you credit to this, but the counterpoint, surely, Stuart, is that, you know, the pandemic was a pretty darn big shock and threat, and there was a lot of optimism early on in the pandemic that we were going to come together, we were going to unite, we were going to find ways to shed the, you know, the narcissism of small differences for some sense of common purpose, but boy, Stuart, I mean, the other big story this week, the Emergencies Act, right? Uh, Implemented, debated, repealed. (laughs) all in whatever that was 72 hours so what's your take uh is sean right is this a wake-up call or is this just you know another signpost in our you know slouching towards gomorrah to channel my inner robert bork yeah I, i think probably the thing that i was most afraid of throughout the pandemic was that fracturing that was happening and i was kind of consistently opposed to mandates on vaccines like almost entirely for that reason. I I think you can see the efficacy of the mandates having a small effect in getting people vaccinated. But I think we've shown, um, you know, the rifts in our society um, due to that. And um, it's not an all-consuming issue for me like it is for, you know, the people who are at these protests. But um, it's just one more thing that divided us. And um, the reason I felt pretty strongly about that was that I had seen so many things dividing us, whether it was school closures, um, any of the rules that were brought in to battle the pandemic, masks were a big one. We just seemed to find a way to scream at each other about everything that happened in the pandemic. And um, I think a lot of that came down to the fact that many of us were sitting in our homes, um, you know, working comfortably and dealing with some real um, tough um, stuff from the pandemic, but not compared to what other people were dealing with. And there was a real divide there. Um, and, and then, you know, having this week, we have um, the invasion um, kicking off. And I, I think actually, you know, I don't want to look at silver linings. I think that's probably not a good way to put it. But one thing I have realized is that, you know, the classic foreign policy debate is hawks versus, um, you know, realists or non-interventionists. And um, we've had a little bit of that. I think some people are still in that kind of mindset. Um uh, you know, these are the two sides and we have to fight each other to figure out what we're going to do. Um, but when you read actually what people are arguing, there's a rhetorical difference, but there's not a lot of difference in the suggestions about what we should do. Um, you know, we're talking about arming Ukraine. I don't think there's a lot of disagreement there. We're talking about sanctions uh, of varying degrees. I, I can't see a lot of people arguing for softer sanctions right now. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, rhetorical differences in what I'm reading. But um, really, I, I think we're all kind of in one voice right now. Uh, and, and it's mostly condemnation of Vladimir Putin. So Sean, to come back to you, I mean, what's what's the rebuttal? Why is this time different? I mean, didn't the pandemic just expose, uh, again, I'm sorry to be pessimistic here on, you know, a Friday morning, maybe I need a couple more coffees in me. But you know, who's who's to say we rise to this challenge? I mean, uh, already, less so in Canada, but in the United States, you are seeing a significant segment of the Republican Party, um, you know, not uh, 
further to Stuart's point, not walking away from Ukraine, but certainly intimating again a kind of America first. This isn't our fight. You know, maybe NATO was responsible for this in the first place for pushing up on Russia's borders uh, in the 90s and early 2000s when we had the opportunity and Russia was enfeebled. So, you know, talk to us about that. I mean, isn't isn't the conservative movement already showing fracturing signs of any kind of coherence or consensus on dealing with the Putin threat? And again, this is a tragedy, ladies and gentlemen. Like, we cannot be complacent here. This is not like the wars that all of us, I mean, I'm a bit older than you guys, so 51, but all the wars in my life were us kind of, you know, pounding, pounding the sand literally and proverbially, you know, it clapped out developing countries like Iraq or fighting ragtag insurgency groups uh, who ultimately got the better of us in Vietnam and Afghanistan. But this is a pure competitor. This is a great power with a great power arsenal of cyber, conventional, and nuclear forces. So, Sean, what's your take? Uh, uh, let me make two quick points, and then I want to put something to, to you, Rudyard. Uh, the, the two points I would make is, first, I, I, I do worry that there is an overcorrection in American conservative politics from the perceived failures of uh, the Bush-era adventurism um, that um, that you're seeing voices from Tucker Carlson to Josh Hawley, Senator Josh Hawley and others um, uh, reflecting a kind of neo-isolationism um, that uh, it seems to me is steering the car too far in the other direction. Um, that is, Stuart says, um, where we, we need to uh, kind of find common ground and coherence is, is a, a kind of realism. Um, and it seems to me there's a risk of uh, uh, that Republican voices and conservative voices more, more generally um, are learning the long, wrong lessons um, from the failures in Iraq and Afghanistan. The second point I'd make is what gives me some reason for optimism um, is an insight from, um, from Canadian thinker Marshall McLuhan. Um, you know, he understood um, better than anyone and certainly sooner than anyone the power of television and the power of images. And it, it seems to me, I don't know how anyone could uh, observe what we've seen over the past 24 or 48 hours coming out of Ukraine. Images, uh, you know, the, the images of um, troops and tanks rolling in, um, the resistance uh, from uh, ordinary Ukrainians, the extraordinary courage of Russians um, protesting in St. Petersburg in Moscow. Um, it, it seems to me that those um, ongoing um, videos and images um, will be hard for those of us in the West um, consumed by our own decadence um, to, to look away from. And that may be the, the, um, the jolt that we need um, to start to recognize that, as you said in a piece for us earlier this week, Rudyard, uh, we're no longer living in the so-called end of history, that history has come roaring back and we need to get our act together. And, and, and maybe, as I say, I'll just that leads me to a question for you. I, I think you understood um, sooner than, than any of us on the Hub team that what we were witnessing was something um, historical, um, that this wasn't just uh, a skirmish between two neighboring powers, um, that it had uh, bigger ramifications as a, a kind of geopolitical moment. What, what, what led you to that early insight? Uh, what, uh, what were you able to bring to bear that maybe some of our younger members of the team 
um, didn't have the kind of historical basis to be able to make that judgment early on. Well, I mean, if you look at U.S. and other stock markets and indices around the world, <laughs> talk about a lack of historical consciousness. I mean, they came roaring back uh, after selling off deeply on the news of the invasion. So I'm always fascinated by markets, as you guys know, as just kind of barometers, a different barometer of opinion. And right now, they kind of seem to be exuding an Alfred C. Newman, what me worry uh, type vibe. So who knows, guys, I'm, I could be totally off base here. But I do think that there is, um, there's something about the this idea of the peace dividend, that with the end of the Cold War, we were able, as a society, and Canada really benefited from this, but Europe especially, we were able to set aside not just the massive public expenditures that went into uh, defense and security, but we were able to reallocate some kind of society's uh, intentionality, our our velocity and kind of impetus as nation states towards this amazing project called globalization, which is finding prosperity in mutual interdependency and trust. So that peace dividend was more than just a cash reallocation of defense budgets to you know, social services. It was a complete psychological reorienting of the West after decades of Cold War. And I, I think we've all talked about it. Maybe this is why I was a bit more sensitive to this at the Monk debates where I wear my other hat. You know, we had a whole series of debates over the last five years on is this the end of the liberal international order? And I think that you could still have a debate about that up to this week. I think it's now over. I think the liberal international order was murdered by Vladimir Putin uh, and his not simply mild incursion into Ukraine, but the surprise of a attempt now, which we're witnessing in real time, an attempt to decapitate uh, the Ukraine, uh, Ukraine and its political leadership and install a puppet regime. So that Canadians have to understand is this is seismic. This is a watershed. This is the shift, as you said, from the end of history, Francis Fukuyama, which we'll have actually as a hub dialogue later this spring. He's got a big new book out on the future of liberalism to you know the return of history to uh, a much more normal state of human affairs, which is large great powers acting out of self-interest using force to articulate and pursue those interests. I mean, it's a very Claus Witzian kind of uh, real politique. It's regrettable, it's lamentable, but boy, further to your article for a shot, we gotta wake up to this. This is, this is not a blip. This is not something we can ride out and hope Oh well, we'll be back to you know opening McDonald's in uh, McDonald's franchises in downtown you know Kiev and proving Thomas Friedman right that you know remember his famous thing you know two nations with McDonald's never go to war with each other. But Stuart, let me come back to you just quickly before we wrap up this topic and go to our our second one. The mood in Ottawa. One of the benefits of the hub is we have reporters and staff in Edmonton, uh, lots of folks here in Toronto, you in Ottawa. What's your sense there? Uh, I'm hearing from MPs that there is a, a rawness on the part of a lot of constituents and their feelings about this, that the emotion is building. And with it, the political pressure is building. Uh, give us a sense of the vibe in Ottawa and what you feel are the kind of the trajectories of public opinion and public angst over this crisis. Yeah, I think um, so. First off, I think it's worth just sort of giving people the mood of yesterday's press conference from uh, the prime minister and the 
deputy prime minister. Um, our foreign minister was there, but you wouldn't have noticed <laughs> that she was there. I think Christia Freeland is kind of running the show on this, uh, at least as a public facing um, uh, sense, um, which makes sense. I mean, this is personal to her. Um, so I, the sense I got from that press conference is that they're a little shell-shocked. And I think um, that's not um, massively surprising because I think you know probably most of us in Canada are also um, you know, I, I will admit that watching this in the early days, I thought, you know, Joe Biden's um, sense of a minor incursion, as he called it, was most likely what was going to happen. And then this kind of, you know, full scale invasion from multiple areas and, you know, land and sea and air um, took me by surprise. Um, maybe I was naive, but I feel like it also took a lot of people by surprise. Um, so I think that is the sense right now. And I think we we're having a discussion when, you know, the trucker protest was in Ottawa about the military coming in and mopping that up. And it seemed like that was the, you know, we're going to sweep them out of here. We'll get our military in there. And a few people who kind of know our capacity on these things were saying, uh, like they could, but it, it's not going to be as simple and it's not going to be as quick as you think it is. Um, so uh, probably it was better to have the police come in from all over Canada and do that kind of slow moving maneuver. Um, so I think there's probably that also, which is we're kind of looking at our own capacity to do these things and thinking we just don't have what we used to have. Um, there are matters of political will. I think a lot of Canadians um, are probably more likely to, I, I'm, we're not talking about troops or anything like that going into Ukraine, but I think they're more likely to want action than even like Germany. Um, a lot of the polling on, you know, Article 5 in NATO, I know that doesn't apply here, but I think it's a good proxy for how people feel about these things. Um, Canadians are far more likely to say we should invoke Article 5 and defend fellow NATO members than our people in Germany and Italy uh, and places that, you know, are in close proximity here. Um, so, I think the politicians are reflecting that. They're also reflecting, you know, there's one and a half million Ukrainians in Canada, um, which is a very large number um, considering our population. Um, it's one of the top um, ethnic groups in the country. Um, so the MPs are reflecting that also, that this does feel like our neighbors are being attacked. Um, and, you know, Freeland's statements yesterday, um, I, I think she was kind of echoing how a lot of Canadians feel. Rudyard, may I just weigh in for a second? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I wrote a piece um, for The Hub during the, uh, the recent election campaign in which we had the various parties competing for, um, for Canadians' votes with promises in a ver various areas that ultimately were part of provincial jurisdiction. And I, I said in that article, that we were having a section 92 election in a section 91 moment. And it, it seems to me we have 330 plus members of, of parliament in Ottawa, many of whom are actually not motivated by the exercise of federal power. They, they wanna be um, mayors of you know, mid-sized cities in Canada, um, you know, talking about zoning and healthcare and childcare and neglecting the awesome power that resides at the, the federal level. I, I think um, Conservative MP Michael Chong, who's the uh, party's um, foreign affairs um, shadow uh, critic, has distinguished himself as, in, in recent days, is co communicating the, the, the need for federal capacity on defense, on foreign policy, and, and, and other areas. Um, but the fact that I, I can name him 
um, is a sign that we we have a real problem that uh, we've come to uh, neglect um, the role of the federal government um, at, at the expense of having the capacity to respond in extraordinary moments like the ones that the one that we're living in. So, um, you know, not only do we need collectively um, to to restore the kind of sense of purpose and resolve and energy um, that has been sapped in, in, in recent decades. But it seems to me um, the, the second thing that needs to happen is that we need uh, federal politicians who, who are in Ottawa to exercise uh, and, and augment federal power, not, um, not a, a, a series of, of politicians who really want to spend their time um, intervening and, and playing in provincial and, and local jurisdiction. If you want to be a mayor, of an Ottawa, of an Ontario city, then run for mayor. Um, don't run for federal mm -hmm. parliament. Okay, thanks, John. When we come back from this break, listeners, uh, we are going to give you uh, a sneak peek into, I don't know, what Stuart thought when he commissioned from Howard England the most successful article ever to appear on The Hub. It happened this week. We'll tell you about the article and uh, Stuart's thinking behind why this story has just exploded uh, for the hub across social networks and chat groups uh, around the world. So back right after the short break. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of the hub. Thank you for listening to this, our Friday subscriber only podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast and what the hub is all about, providing insightful analysis and insights into the big issues and ideas facing Canada, all from a 100% Canadian perspective, please consider becoming a donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the button Donate. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and a whole bunch of great benefits that come with being a Hub donor. Again, you can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Thank you in advance for your generous contribution. Now back to our program. Hello, Hub subscribers. Rudyard Griffiths here, your executive director. You're tuned into our regular Friday Hub subscriber-only podcast where we dig into the big stories and ideas in the news, hopefully leaving you with some new analysis and insights. Our regular guests are Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, Stuart Thompson our editor-in-chief. And hey, in future episodes, we may throw in some commentators, guys, some other voices and perspectives. Uh, but again, just great to be in conversation with you, our Hub subscribers. You're the lifeblood of this organization. And again, thank you for considering making a donation uh, to The Hub, which you can do right now at www.thehub.ca. So Stuart, to come to you, tell us a little bit. I mean, we're all kind of... Uh, uh, thrilled that yeah this article by howard has just gone viral it's our i believe Stuart, am i right it's our most successful article yet since we started publishing in april of 2021 what was the article about and why did you commission it yeah so it is actually our most successful and just this morning it's um double the second most successful piece so it's um yeah it, it's it's quite a winner um and you said the word commission but uh, I commission a lot of pieces, but with Howard Anglin, you don't really commission. You just wake up and find some gold in your nice. inbox. And it's uh, as an editor, you get to go out and say, yeah, I worked really hard getting this piece from Howard. Uh, turned out really well. Um, so I can't take too much credit, but it's uh, it's one of those pieces that I think 
Um, we were so caught up in the news. What's going to happen? You know, the Emergencies Act's being invoked. Um, we had a protest in downtown Ottawa. There was logistical challenges of clearing that, and that was kind of leading the news. Uh, we actually had two pieces um, in that same period, one from Joanna Barron, um, which also was wildly successful, just kind of saying, you know, I don't think we've quite met the threshold for the Emergencies Act. And Howard went a different way, which I think was a really interesting take uh, on this bill, which I mean, the, the Emergencies Act came about in 1988. And we are now using that legislation to um, grab Bitcoin and freeze bank accounts. And we're doing it in a world where um, there's not a lot of cash floating around. Um, like this is a matter of technology, but I don't know about you guys, but I don't, ever since the pandemic started, I haven't had any cash in my wallet in ages. And I think we've all kind of just adapted to this world and it's kind of accelerated recently too, where um, if you don't have currency in your hand, uh, if you don't have a bank account, if your bank account's been frozen, if the bank, you know, we know banks are very uh, risk averse entities. So if they're being told by the government that um, they should freeze this account, they might just chuck you as a customer. Um, we know that kind of stuff can happen. Um, it basically makes you an unperson. And that is Howard's point here, which is that we can't just pretend that we're freezing a few bucks and we're stopping this money from, you know, fueling a protest. Um, we're levying some pretty uh, serious consequences on people who, you know, may or may not have understood what they were getting into when they donated to this protest. So um, I, I think that is um, just a fantastic point. And I think there was a lot of glibness about this um, going around, especially among a lot of commentators, among a lot of news people um, that, you know, this is just, you know, we're freezing the money that was in this um, GoFundMe or GoSendMe or whatever the new one they were using is. And uh, it's, it's far more severe than that. And there are precedents being set here that we may want to take a second look at. Um, so I think he hit a nerve and I think we saw this was kind of going viral in certain communities, you know, hacker communities and digital like crypto bro communities who I think haven't really had anyone speaking for them um, to the people who were kind of, you know, I, I can't imagine a lot of our bureaucrats and politicians know a lot about the inner workings of crypto. So I think they're constantly frustrated by that. And it was nice. I don't think Howard is a big crypto bro, but it was nice to have him <laughs> make that point. Yeah, so listeners can uh, grab this article right now at thehub.ca. It, it's entitled, In Our Cashless Society, We Need to Take Digital Jail Seriously by Howard England. Really recommend you check it out. So let's talk about, because ostensibly what the hub is about, about public policy and trying to think through public policy. So Sean, what's the public policy response here? Because on, on one level, you could say, yes, you know, this is a gross kind of... Um, uh, impediment to these people's lives. Like literally it is a, it is a, a digital jail. Once your bank account's frozen, you, how do you buy groceries? How do you pay your rent? You know, the, it, it's a new, really serious coercive power of, of the state. Um, so what do you do about it? And I know there's a lot of excitement out there in with the crypto bros and others about crypto as a workaround, but at the end of the day, Maybe a reason I've always been a bit skeptical about crypto is precisely what we saw here, which is the state has awesome powers of financial uh, regulation and control through our banking and financial system. And, you know, it's great to think that you can have a Bitcoin wallet somewhere, but, you know, 
try bringing that money into Canada. Try, you know, working with a Canadian bank in the wrong context, i.e., you know, an emergencies act where they're going after your accounts. You might have that wallet in some server in China or Singapore, uh, you know, with your Bitcoin safely there. I don't know how you're ever going to get the cash to yourself. Yeah, I would say two things. Um, Stuart referred to the inherent conservatism of um, Canada's financial sector. And and it seems to me um, that's a big part of the story here. And it will only be reinforced in the aftermath of the of the Emergencies Act. Um, Listeners will know that well, the Emergencies Act extraordinary powers have been revoked um, in this particular case, um, Minister of Finance Christia Friedland has promised to introduce legislation, standalone permanent legislation, to give the government um, uh, the capacity to uh, better regulate uh, crowdsourcing uh, platforms and uh, and cryptocurrency. So this this issue isn't over. In fact, it's really just beginning. And um, and you know, hopefully, the hub can be a platform um, for different points of view when we see uh, this standalone legislation from the government. What does it mean for personal freedom? But also, what does it mean for innovation in the financial sector? Um, we have uh, a, a very closed uh, industry um, in terms of uh, in terms of the ability to um, to introduce competition from. Uh, from other markets. Um, and, you know, one can't help but think um, that Canadian banks would be quite happy uh, with legislation coming from the government that um, further impedes the ability um, from fintech upstarts um, to be able to, um, to, to challenge them. So th- 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 there, this may be a case where there's a, a, a confluence of interest between, um, between a government um, that, uh, that sees in crypto and some of these other financial innovations, uh, a, a basis to, uh, to fund activities that, um, that the government doesn't like, and from a financial sector um, uh, that, uh, that may see such legislation or ongoing regulation um, as a way to stamp out uh, the competition. Um, so yeah, these, are, these are big issues, big mm-hmm. questions, and, and uh, we're, we're certainly going to be continuing to pursue them at the hub. Yeah, just to bring a human dimension to this, you know, I was... Reading the Globe and Mail's reporting on this, um, we're always happy to mention, you know, sister news groups and great stuff that they do. And they they had found a, a woman, a, a 73-year-old woman called Norma Smith, uh, who donated $50 uh, to the convoy. And she re- said, told this Globe reporter that she'd been, quote, checking her uh, bank account three times a day to make sure that it hadn't been affected. And she said, quote, looking back, had I known this would have happened, I never would have donated. Mrs. Smith, the Globe writes, lives alone and can't afford to have her savings uh, frozen. Um, So I just think what worries me here is the the unintended consequences, the kind of chilling effects that this has on people's future free speech, political, democratic, uh, participation, that this has to be chilling uh, for many of us uh, out there. If you think retroactively, the government's going to come back and declare some act. And let's face it, donating to the convoy, I mean, favor the convoy or not, you know, you'd think in our society that that would be generally understood to be a, a legitimate 
act on the part of an expression of you as a citizen in a democracy of your political preference. Um, what do you think of that, Stuart? I mean, am I over-exaggerating here? Or I don't know. I just I, I worry that we start moving the heavy machinery of government around and poor this poor 73-year-old woman is kind of terrified and arguably will now retreat forever from the public square. We'll never give money to anything again, any political party. Yeah, I, I, that is, I mean, as a journalist, you're always aware of um, chilling of speech rather than, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a lawsuit, doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, libel or defamation. There are other ways to make people think mm -hmm. twice about saying certain things. And um, that, I mean, if you look at our, the way our discourse has worked over the past decade or so, um, it's just a classic example of just restricting the bounds of, you know, where the discourse goes. Um, and I think that is, is definitely happening here where like the, the convoy initially, I mean, they weren't immediately doing criminal mischief. And then, you know, when they got to Ottawa, there was sort of that buildup. They're going to Ottawa. They're going to protest the mandates. Um, it's a perfectly legitimate political expression at that point. And a lot of these people were donating, um, you know, they may be low information people who don't necessarily follow the news and they're not necessarily reading uh, into the backgrounds of all the organizers of the, the convoy. They just saw something that they wanted uh, a, a message they wanted to get to our politicians. And I, I think that's really troubling too, because there was, a, there was a quite a period of time where um, it was just a perfectly normal anti-mandate protest. Um, and then after that, you know, I can imagine if once you start donating to a group who's doing some kind of criminal activity, you can, you can imagine some fair uh, action on the part of the government there. But that wasn't always the case. And I think, um, you know, there is we are a charity and we also rely on people being generous to us. So there is like a little bit of self-interest on our part here that we wouldn't want people to feel like they can't support certain causes. I mean, at the hub, we try to push the boundaries on uh, what you can say. We've pushed back on things like masking in schools, which in Canada is a little bit out of the bounds of debate, but everywhere else in the world, not so much. Um, the question is, um, should you be concerned about that? Uh, and even if there's no realistic chance of that being cracked down upon, you know, the 76 year old woman in, you know, outside of Toronto may feel differently. Yeah. Okay, Sean, I'm going to give you the last uh, word on this before we wrap up uh, this inaugural edition of the Hub subscriber only podcast. I, I would just say, Rudyard, um, that if you've been watching Western politics in the past several years, um, the, the rise of of populism fueled by the so-called left behinds, people who felt like politics wasn't representative or responsive. That for me, the logical conclusion is not to marginalize, isolate, or um, attack different people because of their ideas and perspectives. Um, it's to find a way to, for our politics to be more inclusive. Because I think if there's one lesson from the United States is that, um, is that when you marginalize or isolate people, they don't go away, right? They find a cipher um, to bring expression to their to their perspective. And you know, if our mainstream political parties, if mainstream political voices want to protect against um, the the festering of people um, and and their ideas and perspectives and so on, it's to find a way for our mainstream politics to be more inclusive. And as we've just discussed. 
um, um, a chill on people's ability to participate in, in mainstream causes um, I, worries me a great deal precisely because it creates the conditions um, for the rise of a, a, of a kind of marginalized politics um, in our society. Well, guys, uh, thank you for coming on, uh, being part of this inaugural podcast. And just thank you to all of our subscribers. Um, this is a big week for us at The Hub. It's our highest ever um, website and online traffic, you know, closing in on almost 100,000 uh, page views of our content. And, um, you know, Stuart, I know this has been a, a long journey for you since we launched last April, but uh, wow, congratulations. You're really... Uh, getting up to some uh, big and significant numbers. And I think we're shaping the public discourse in positive ways. Guys, we'll do this uh, all again uh, late next week for uh, the exclusive listening pleasure of our subscribers getting this hot in their inbox Saturday morning, courtesy of the Hub's daily email newsletter per diem. Be well, be safe, guys. Um, have a terrific weekend. Thank you for listening to this special Friday edition of The Hub Dialogues for subscribers only. I hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have a comment or suggestion about the show, an issue, a topic, an idea that you'd like us to cover on our regular Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues, please send us an email to info at thehub.ca. Also, Check out our website, www.thehub.ca, for tons of great analysis and insights about the big issues and ideas shaping our world and Canada's future. While you're there, if you'd like to, consider becoming a donor. We'd love to have your support. Simply click on the Donate button. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt, and you'll get a whole series of great benefits and perks that come with being a Hub donor. This edition and every edition of the Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues are produced by Ricky Gerwitz. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. Talk to you again next Friday. Bye-bye.